so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Jay Kim, a pastor and author of a recent book titled Analog Christian, Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. Today, we talk about the nature of Christian discipleship in a digital age. Jay serves as the lead pastor at Westgate Church in Silicon Valley and also on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. His writing has been featured at Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, and Relevant Magazine. He's also the author of another book with InterVarsity Press entitled Analog Church. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jay, it's really great to have you back here on the Digital Public Square. Last time we talked was kind of an interesting time. It was right at the release of your new book, uh, but it was also the start of the pandemic. Um, And so that was a very, in God's timing, it was a pretty interesting time to release a book uh, called Analog Church and talking about some of the ways technology is forming and shaping us especially in a time when we were so dependent upon technology uh, to communicate and to engage with one another. So I'm really glad to have you back here on the podcast. So for listeners' sake, can you tell us a little bit about your background and any changes that have happened since the last book? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Jason. I'm so glad to talk to you again. Uh, Yeah, you know, I'm a pastor here in the Silicon Valley. I'm also a native of the Silicon Valley. I've been here basically my whole life. When we first talked uh, around the book Analog Church in 2020, I was serving on staff at a church uh, in Santa Cruz, which is about 30, 40 minutes south of the Silicon Valley. And as a church called Vintage Faith Church, I was serving there. And shortly after Analog Church came out, I transitioned. I left Vintage and actually went to join the staff of a church where I had been on staff previously, a church here in Silicon Valley called Westgate Church. Um, and I came back because the lead pastor, uh, he'd been the lead pastor for 20 years, and he was sort of ready to begin a succession plan. So that started in August of 2020. And then I, I sort of, I guess, officially stepped into the lead pastor role uh, in January of 2022. So that's been my last couple of years, been quite a whirlwind going through all that in the midst of a pandemic. But um, yeah, it's been a joy and a gift. 
Well, and that's one of the things I I really have benefited from your work. Obviously, Analog Church was such a good book, and now we'll talk a little bit today about this Analog Christian book, kind of a follow-up in some sense, focused a little bit less on the church as corporate church and a little bit more on kind of personal discipleship and things like that. In the first book, you use this phrase of the digital informing and the analog transforming. And I wanted to see in light of kind of 2020 and the pandemic and those years kind of using a lot of these digital tools more so than what we had before, does that still hold true in your mind? And then also kind of what ways have you seen kind of technology shaping and forming us maybe that you hadn't seen prior to the book and prior to the pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that that still holds true, that digital primarily informs analog is really the most effective way to experience transformation. You know, one thing now in hindsight, two years after the book was released, and several years after I first wrote those words, in hindsight, I would nuance it a little bit uh, and say that digital informs, but also digital forms. <laughs> you know, and I, I do hint at that in Analog Church, uh, but this follow up book, Analog Christian. Um, really deep dives into that. Uh, the fact that digital technology does form us. You know, you've done a lot of work along these lines as well that I've benefited tremendously from. And actually, it's not, you know, most people would assume when I say that, that what I mean is digital forms us in negative ways, hard stop, period. And that's not necessarily what I mean. I just mean that anything that we engage with as consistently and as constantly as most of us do with digital technology, it will by its nature form us. I mean, formation happens over the course of consistent, constant engagement. And we don't really have a choice in the matter. I mean, the reality is all of us are being formed by someone or something or several someones or some things at all times. It's just human nature to be formed into something or someone. And uh, so I think the last two years, for me, they have affirmed uh, the feelings I had before the previous two years, that digital, um, its most effective usage is the exchange of information, the exchange of ideas and, and data. And uh, that is actually formative. You know, the information and the data and the knowledge we garner that we allow to sort of seep into our body and bones, that's formative stuff. But if and when we recognize I am a certain type of person today, and my desire is that God, by his spirit, might transform me into a different or new type of person tomorrow, and even more so the day after that and the day after that, then I think that sort of work, uh, I am even more convinced today than I, than I was two years ago that that sort of work most effectively happens in analog, in embodied, physical, show-up, be with one another sorts of ways. So yeah, I mean, I, I think more than anything, the last two years, as difficult as they've been, I'm grateful for them in the sense that uh, they've been really clarifying for me in some of the ideas that I've already explored. And I'm certain that you know there's more to come in terms of what the coming years will reveal to all of us. 
Yeah, I know one of the things that we've talked about a few different times um, is kind of not only the interesting timing uh, and God's providence of your book kind of launching right at the pandemic. Mine launched about a week before the pandemic hit. Uh, so it was a really interesting time, especially for book sales, because it, places like Amazon stopped shipping books there for a little bit. They were only shipping essentials because there was kind of a strain and kind of panic in many ways. But one of the things that I really love is, you know, a lot of these ideas have been kind of percolating, obviously, for years in your mind to kind of a lot of folks don't maybe totally realize that when you write a book, it's typically a a year or two before you actually see it in publication. Uh, So it's always fun kind of writing to a future you or to someone that's going to be reading this in the future. Um, But again, exactly what you said. I know when I talk about technology and even when we talk about it here on the podcast, often I'm, I'm asked, well, is it good or bad? And we want to know, is, is technology all good or is it bad? Or, you know, maybe it's all it's primarily good, but it has some negative influences or kind of bad traits or it's all bad, but it maybe can be kind of used in some good ways, kind of redeemed in many ways. And I think that in what we talked about and what you really talk about in a lot of your work is that's kind of the wrong question to be asking. It's not, is it good or bad, but it's also not neutral, which a lot of people say, well, if it's not good or bad, then it has to be neutral. It's just the way we use it. But as you rightfully said just there, is technology is forming and shaping us in very, very particular ways, some good and some bad. And so part of the job of the Christian in a digital age is to recognize that and to ask some of those hard questions. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is it about technology that's forming and discipling us? Like, what is it about technology that seems to kind of push us and pull us and kind of form us in those particular ways. I mean, I think when we think of other things around our lives, we maybe look at technology in light of the pandemic and kind of where we are now and go, yeah, I guess it is kind of doing that. It's almost like a wake-up call. What is it about technology that's actually doing that and kind of drawing us into those cycles? Yeah, there's there's a lot to say there. I, I think primarily what's been most helpful for me is to think about and this is beyond digital technology, but rather just to think about what technology as a whole is for, right? And ultimately, throughout the course of human history, leaps forward in technology are in some form or fashion designed to make life easier for us in some way. Nobody develops a new technology to inconvenience society further, right? That's not a technology. That's a big giant step backwards. And and I will say, I think that that's actually quite wonderful. I, I think that, you know, technology is a gift. It's a gift from God that he has given us creativity, ingenuity, the ability to think and to problem solve, to leverage our skills and our resources to create, hopefully, uh, a better world. Now, whether we actually do that or not is uh, debatable, and it's not monolithic. You know, some technologies have certainly made a better world and directed us in the direction of of human flourishing. And of course, you know, all of us can name many technologies that have actually, in hindsight, we look back and we realize, oh, that actually made us worse. And in those cases, when technology has uh, made us worse, there's a really common denominator. It's very rarely because the intention of the technology was to make us worse. Rather, it's because the technology, once made readily available, begins to be misused and abused. And so I like what you said earlier that, uh, yeah, technology maybe does not have 
an inherent morality to it most of the time, although many would suggest, and I would tend to agree that things like social media in particular, in its inherent design, actually has a sort of ethic to it. Um, you obviously, this is an area that, that you uh, dive into quite a bit in your work. And at the same time, how that ethic is unleashed or abused or misused, the depth and the breadth of its toxic effects on us as individuals and as communities, the reality is people hold redemptive capabilities. So social media is a good example. There is, uh, it seems, an inherent sort of ethic or morality, at least in some part, to its design. But I've also seen people redeem social media for the good. You know, I think we all know people who've actually done that and continue to do that. Uh, and in many ways, that sort of redemptive arc is the way of Jesus. You know, Jesus does that sort of work time and time again in the most baseline way, just in the gospel stories. He leans into brokenness and pain and he redeems it by bringing healing and wholeness. You know, the blind are able to see, the lame are able to walk. Well, that sort of ethic is the Jesus way. And even if certain technologies have maybe an inherent morality, there is the possibility that followers of Jesus can lean in and do redemptive work in those spaces and on those mediums. But to the question about how it forms us, I think most of the time, for most of us, rather than leaning into, uh, for example, social media or other technologies, particularly in the digital age, rather than leaning in to offer a redemptive possibility, most of us get wrapped up in the vortex of the inherent sort of morality or ethic or rhythm or cadence that the technology offers us, right? So many listeners to this podcast, I'm sure, have either watched or heard of uh, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Tristan Harris, uh, who is one of the main voices in that documentary, you know, he's a design ethicist, and he sort of famously said uh, several years ago, that most people, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says that most people think social media is free uh, because you just go on your phone, you download it, you don't pay a thing, and boom, there you are. Um, you're living in the social media world now. And he he suggests, and I agree with him, nothing is free. If it's free to you, it probably means you're the product. And uh, that's true, you know, on social media for the most part, unless we lean in with um, an intentional focus on offering redemptive possibilities, we just get subsumed as the product. We're the thing being sold and bought, you know, our information, our proclivities, our, our particular um, desires and wants and all of those sorts of things. So I think in those ways, because most of us are not as intentional as we need to be when we lean into digital technologies, it forms us. And I would suggest in many ways, it forms us as products. You know, it forms us not as people, but as things, as products to be um, exchanged on the sort of social media, internet marketplace. And the really dangerous, insidious thing about it is most of us don't even realize it. We're just having a good time, flipping our thumbs, scrolling our feeds, uh, not realizing that we're being subsumed by this thing that has really no intentions of working for our good and for transformative good. 
you know? So I, I just, I think it's an important question for all of us to ask, uh, especially anytime um, we're engaging in the digital sphere. Yeah, I find that really interesting because, as you said, rightfully said, it's not that technology is good or bad in itself, and it's definitely not neutral. It has an inherent design. It has an inherent ethic in many ways of an intentionality of why how it wants us to engage in that sense and how the designers have set that up. I always talk about whether you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, it's prompting you to post. It's saying, what's happening? What's going on? What's on your mind? It's wanting and encouraging you to do that. And in many ways, they're designed to keep you on there as long as possible because it keeps your eyeballs on a lot of advertising that's paying the bills uh, for these type of companies. And so, yeah, it has that kind of inherent design, inherent purpose. And part of the job of the Christian, really part of the job of just being a human being, is recognizing what those designs are. And then how is it shaping and forming us and to be able to kind of cultivate wisdom, you know, contentment and resilience, as you talk about here in the book. One of the things before we kind of jump into some of the content of the book specifically that I wanted to kind of hone in on, were some of the ways or patterns that you're starting to see, especially from a church leadership position, about the way technology is forming and shaping us? What are some of those vices or maybe even bad habits, maybe some of the negative ways that we see technology forming and shaping us that you're even seeing in the church? Uh, what ways are these tools shaping and forming us in ways that we may not even totally be recognizing? Yeah. There's so much. I mean, you know, the speed of the internet is making us grossly impatient, which I think also leads to a shallowness. You know, Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, talks about how, you know, frenetic shallowness, a constant state of frenetic shallowness prevents us from being able to do deep work. And I think most people would agree we would love for our lives to primarily lean into deep work, meaningful work, the stuff that leaves an indelible mark, has a real impact, has a sort of depth, you know, a robustness to it, a sense of meaning and significance. But uh, the digital age, because I love Cal Newport's phrase, because it is by its nature in many ways, and especially because of the way we engage, it is frenetically shallow, meaning it's designed to sort of pull us into this constant ping pong back and forth between one thing to the next to the next. It breeds in us, again, this is the formative power of technology, it breeds within us a frenetic shallowness. We begin to lose our aptitude for sitting and lingering for an extended period of time. You know, there's data that that reveals, you know, the the sort of demise of long format reading. And it is uh, you know, it's no surprise that when most of us are reading most of the things we're reading in these sort of bite-sized 240 character tweets or these, you know, clickbaity headlines and news articles getting shorter and shorter, you know, when I open my Atlantic app and it's so interesting because every article has like a time marker, six-minute read, four-minute read, 12-minute read. And uh, my assumption, I don't have data for this, my assumption is that they probably have metrics on which articles are the most popular. My guess is that the shorter, the better. You know, So it does all sorts of things like that, which then begins to, in ways that are unintended by us, uh, it's not something we want, but you know, it's going to have an effect on our actual, real, everyday lives. 
we begin to feel frenetically shallow when we're with uh, the people we love, you know, our our dearest friends or our children or spouse or whoever it might be. We begin to feel frenetically shallow at work, uh, at church, you know, we begin to gather with our small group and they don't all sort of think the way we do and there's something in us that maybe didn't exist 25 years ago but now we're like man i gotta get out of here i gotta move on i can't sit and linger with these people who do not sort of wrap their personalities around mine in a way that really works for me i can't do this i got a number of other options you know so there's a lot of things like that happening i i also think uh, a journalist matt taibbi he wrote a fantastic book a year or two ago called hate Inc. And it's all about uh, media, um, both social media and just news media in general, and how it really runs on the fuel of division and vitriol, that it really is sort of the gasoline that ignites the fire, you know, that grows its platform and its reach. And so because we get so wrapped up in media that by its nature is designed to grab our attentions quickly, and because you know research has shown that the best way to grab our attention is to just get us riled up and uh, begin instigating some outrage within us, we begin to see the world through the lens of outrage. We just begin to see the world through the lens of, I'm right, and if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And the exchange we are going to have is an exchange of outrage. That's just normative behavior. And that's been formative. I think most people listening would agree. I mean, just spend 10 minutes on Facebook anytime there's any particular cultural moment happening in the world, and you'll see this exact thing unfold right before you. And uh, that's been a really, really dangerous formational uh, effect. I think it was happening before the digital age, but certainly I think the digital age has accelerated it to its extremes. And it is, it's keeping us from becoming the sorts of people who live with uh, a sort of steady, calm confidence in the steadiness of God. We are forgetting that the path to human flourishing and to God's glory does not run through the White House or Washington, D.C. It runs through the way of Jesus. And we are very quickly forgetting this. Uh, because, I, And I know this because if we weren't forgetting it, there would not be so much outrage. <laughs> there would be a steadiness and a calm and a confidence. What I'm not talking about is like the trite remarks when some tragedy happens on a national level and we just say, oh, just pray about it, you know, like surrender, surrender it to God. It's going to be okay. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, you know, we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Absolutely. But in terms of where we plant the flag of our hope, it just feels like we have caved in, we've given in and again, been subsumed by media, social media, news media, accelerated by the devices and the mediums in the internet age that we through which we mostly consume media. And it's creating in us this sort of outrage that keeps us from uh, leaning into, into Jesus and his rule and reign over the world. Yeah, I think in a lot of listeners are probably kind of nodding along going, yeah, I, I see that or I'm starting to see some of these patterns and ways technology shaping me. But it's not enough to recognize it. 
Um, and I think you clearly point that out in the book, is not enough to recognize these things. It's to kind of cultivate these new habits or these new kind of formative behaviors in our life and our new way of kind of addressing a lot of that. And you do that through, in many ways, the paradigm of the fruits of the Spirit. You kind of organize them around these these ideas of contentment, resilience, and wisdom. And you kind of organize the, the fruits of the Spirit around that. So I want to say, what is it about kind of the fruits of the Spirit or these kind of three, contentment, resilience, and wisdom, that help us to, I mean, we read in Matthew 22, um, how Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And I've always found that interesting that it's it's outward. It's loving God who's outside of us and loving others who's also outside of us. And especially in our modern culture that's so fixated on the individual and ourself and our defining of our own realities, I always found that interesting. And you even read that in the Fruits of the Spirit that are kind of outwardly focused. They're inward dispositions, but they have outward kind of impact and influence on on people's lives. So what is it about the fruits of the Spirit that kind of help to counteract in many ways or kind of reframe a lot of the ways technology is forming us and to kind of reframe in the way of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, it's interesting to me, the the way analog Christian is, is sort of framed, like you said, um, most scholars will say that when Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and then he lists these nine attributes or characteristics of the Spirit's fruit in us, most scholars will agree that he's talking about them or presenting them almost as a triad. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And as I studied that a bit more, really just out of my own desire to figure this thing out, I was wrestling myself personally with so much discontentment, fragility, and foolishness. And it wasn't all because of digital technology, but much of it was tethered to my own misuse and abuse and addiction, you know, to digital technology. I began to find that these triads, you know, love, joy, peace, I discovered that that really is, and, and not just kind of cultural renderings of those words, but really a rich, robust, biblical understanding of love, joy, and peace. I found that that really was the path to contentment. It was a way to untether myself from the discontentment that I was just constantly sort of carrying around uh, in my heart and my mind. And then I discovered that, again, biblical understanding of patience and of kindness and goodness you know that we have received from God so that we might extend it out to others that really was the way to build resilience in my life to learn to become the sort of person who embodied patience kindness and goodness in the face of all of the you know mad rush of impatience and hostility uh, and, and sort of infidelity you know the sort of forgetfulness that we live with because we're moving so quickly that really was the way to build resilience in my life and then faithfulness gentleness and self-control you know that triad really points to a life of wisdom to live uh, faithfully to God um, rather than forgetting that our primary allegiance is to Him, you know, to live gently in a world of outrage and to lean into self control when the internet offers us so many opportunities for just reckless, thoughtless indulgence. That really was the way to living wisely in, in what I would consider a significantly foolish 
age. And, you know, that is the brilliance of the scriptures. That's the brilliance of the Bible. Here are these words written two millennia ago, you know, on the other side of the planet in a culture and at a time that is so unlike our own in a language that is not our own. And yet the timeless power of the truth of scripture speaks into our current reality and so much of what ails us in the digital age. And I think the other thing to say here is, you know, again, going back to Cal Newport's phrase, frenetic shallowness, my tendency is to want to microwave this stuff. You know, I just as like, okay, I read the passage, man, this sounds awesome. I want to be this sort of person who lives with love, joy, and peace leading to contentment and patience, kindness, goodness, making me resilient and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, making me wise. I want to do that. So I'm going to pop it in the microwave, press a minute 30, and then boom, I'll just be the sort of person who exudes the fruit of the spirit. I think it's so uh, intentional from Paul. Um, This is fruit. You know, you can't microwave fruit. I can't, you know, like I have an orange tree in my front yard. It's not like I water it on Monday and then on Tuesday I've got a beautiful ripe orange. I mean, it comes in season. And for most of the time, the tree doesn't look like it's doing anything. You know, folks who garden, you like, you know, work the soil and plant the seed and water it every day and make sure it has enough sunlight, give it the necessary nutrients that it needs and the dirt and all that stuff. And you're sweaty and you're hot and you're tired and you got dirt beneath your fingernails. But day after day, you go out and all you see is just literally a plot of dirt, you know, but but you do the work because you believe that beneath the soil and the darkness where you cannot see, life is beginning to grow. And um, that is so, that sort of approach to life in general is so antithetical to everything about the digital age, you know, where we just want to click one button and move on to the next thing, you know, where our thumbs move faster than human thumbs have ever moved before because we're so adept at scrolling and typing on our phones. So for me, um, it was, you know, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised. And it was like, man, I can't believe it. What a gift. These ancient words uh, that are, again, because they are divinely inspired, the words of God spoken to us and for us. It's like, here we go. You know, God speaking into our current moment in such a beautiful way. So, yeah, there, there you go. That's kind of the connection I make. Yeah, I think that cultivating kind of metaphor, even that gardening metaphor is pretty apt. And and one of the things that I find really interesting about kind of the way you've talked about, and you've alluded to this multiple times, is that, you know, technology, a lot of the patterns and habits and kind of ways that we've been shaped by it didn't happen overnight. This happened over the long haul. It happened over many, many, many years and just constant connectivity. And so a lot of times I think you're right is that it isn't kind of a flip of a switch. We can't microwave it. It's not going to be a, here's the way to fix it all. Here's the way to cultivate wisdom. Tomorrow you'll be wise. Is it something that's going to take a long time? And that's kind of the process of wisdom. I mean, it's something wisdom's gained. I mean, the Proverbs talk a lot about how it's cultivated over time and that the glory of being uh, gray-haired. And I'm starting to get gray, but I'm not gray because I'm wise. I'm just gray because I'm going gray early. But like the glories of gray hair, and what is it speaking to? It's speaking to that idea of wisdom. It's speaking to that idea of you kind of been through the rhythms of life and you've learned along the way. 
One of the things that you do in the book that I really like, and I mean, obviously there's so much that we can unpack here and we're just, in many ways, it feels like we're just getting going, but in many ways we're kind of starting to kind of go on the decline of the podcast itself and kind of closer to the end. But you talk a lot about cultivating contentment. And I think that's a really interesting thing, especially in a more kind of consumeristic, materialistic age that we're always comparing ourselves to other people. We're always, uh, we're being kind of marketed to constantly, especially on social media. That's part of the reason we're the product in that sense, because we're being marketed to constantly. So what is it about cultivating contentment specifically uh, that you think is kind of almost countercultural? Being content not only in what we have and what God has done for us, but kind of this joy instead of comparison or peace instead of contempt. What is it about contentment that really helps to reframe a lot of the ways that we use technology? Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, you said it, and you said it beautifully there. It is sort of a countercultural way to approach contentment. I think one of the reasons why we feel so discontent is because many of us have bought the cultural lie that contentment is found by way of you know, achievement and accumulation, you know, that we can achieve our way, accumulate our way, earn our way by climbing the cultural success ladder to curate the sort of life and create the sort of life that looks like the sort of life that's content. But uh, the model for that, especially in the digital age, is informed quite a bit by, as one example of many, by social media. So, you know, comparison, I think, in, in many ways, is the fuel that runs social media. As I compare the reality of my seemingly ho-hum, mundane, ordinary life against the backdrop of everybody else's glossy, filtered Instagram feeds. And what's really interesting is, intellectually, almost all of us know that social media and like Instagram, for example, is a very highly curated uh, experience. We know that when I see that photo of my friend laying on the beach in the Maldives on a perfectly sunny day with white sand beaches, what I know is that's not his life every single day. What I know is next Tuesday, he's going to be back in his cubicle needing to turn in his TPS reports or whatever. You know, We know those things. And yet, intrinsically, even though our minds know it, everything else in our bodies tell us, well, how come your life right now in this exact moment doesn't look like that? As if sitting on a warm sand beach in the Maldives is the key to contentment. Because even that's not really quite true, you know? So for me, you know, this actually was born out of just my own experience. Just as a human being wrapped up in the vortex of the digital age, I found myself wrestling with this so much. This British psychologist named Michael Isink, several years ago, he coined the phrase the hedonic treadmill. And he was talking about, you know, hedonic meaning hedonism, the the relentless pursuit of pleasure. And he, he talked about how in our culture today, we most people live on a hedonic treadmill, meaning we are chasing pleasure, but it's a treadmill because on a treadmill, you're constantly running, but you never arrive anywhere. You actually never move forward. And I think that's what cultural pursuit of contentment looks like. It's this unattainable, false reality that's dangled in front of us like a carrot, 
And we're running, 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 chasing, 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 trying to climb that ladder to finally achieve this sort of mythical state of contentment. When in reality, biblically speaking, contentment is found not in accumulating and achieving, but in receiving and giving, in receiving the lavish, undeserved love and grace of God, and then giving that love and that grace away. And the two are coupled with one another. There's been a lot of scholarship around the idea of grace and grace as a gift, and sort of in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, a culture of reciprocity, that in that culture, at the time of the New Testament, when a person was given a gift, it was um, not demanded, it was just culturally normative and expected that that person would give something back in return. And it wasn't because the gift was conditional. It was because there was an understanding that gifts were uh, a sort of cultural exchange, that it wasn't just getting something you wanted. It was an exchange of relationship, a building of trust. And so, of course, there would be a receiving and a giving and then a receiving and a giving. And I think, like you said earlier, in our age of insane uh, individualism and autonomy, we've lost the giving part. And what's really dangerous about it is, is because we, we don't really know how to give, the reality is we don't really know how to receive. And so we find ourselves just chasing. You know, rather than receiving and giving love and grace and kindness and compassion, we just chase pleasure. And it leaves us exhausted and utterly discontent. Because contentment is found, truly, biblically speaking, it's found in receiving the love of God from God and from the community, the people of God, and then returning that love, giving that love back to God and to the people of God and to the world. Uh, and it's in that exchange of receiving and giving that we really discover meaningful contentment. But it is antithetical to cultural norms and cultural mythologies about the content life. Yeah, I think one of the things that you kind of point out there is this idea of discontentment. In some ways, that discontentment can even lead to a lot of the hostility and the tensions we feel today. I mean, kind of the divisiveness and a lot of the tension and what many call kind of the polarization of the day. And so obviously, there's kind of a lot that we could unpack there. But as you're talking, kind of later on in the book, you talk about this idea of gentleness instead of outrage. And I think we live in some sense in an outrage culture where it's almost encouraged. Um, we even see, I mean, there have been studies that show that even some of the platforms reward kind of outrage. Uh, they're encouraging it. One, why? Because there's more engagement and the more engagement means the more eyeballs. And so I think, you know, Lord willing, a lot of that has changed since these studies came out, but probably hasn't in some sense. And so we live in kind of these really tense times. So how does the fruits of the spirit kind of in the Christian way of wisdom kind of help reframe a lot of the tensions and kind of divisions. I mean, the tensions don't go away per se. I mean, we disagree on some fundamental truths in our society and we don't, we shouldn't shy away from truth or kind of cover it up or kind of push it down. No, we do speak to the realities, but at the same time, we can do so in a gentleness and a compassionate way. Um, so how, how kind of does the fruit of the spirit kind of help us to overcome some of the outrage that we see today, especially online? Yeah. Um, you know, one, I'll cite a book. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote a book a year or two ago um, called Gentle and Lowly. And 
incredible book and it was so inspiring and helpful to me for a number of reasons. One of those reasons, it just reframed how I thought about gentleness in general. I think culturally speaking, when we hear that word gentleness, it's not necessarily a negative. You know, people don't feel negatively about gentleness, but in reality, particularly in our outrage culture, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us would like everyone around us to be gentle, to give us free reign to be however we want to be. You know, in other words, uh, we want the freedom to simply spew whatever anger or vitriol we're feeling in any given moment. And our highest hope is that everybody else just be gentle. You know, don't don't spew that thing back to me, sort of thing. You know, it's interesting in in the first century world, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, the idea of gentleness or or meekness might be a synonym. Uh, there's a lot of literature from uh, first century Greco-Roman philosophers and thinkers where they did not think of gentleness as a virtue. They really almost label it a vice. You know, there's a lot of literature where they basically say like, "Oh, gentleness is for the weak." Essentially, you know, it's for the worst amongst us. You know, peasants should be gentle, but if you're a, a, a man or woman of nobility, there's no room for gentleness there. You got to stand tall, you know, broad shoulders and stand above the fray and lord it over people, assert your dominance, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, it's interesting, Jesus shows a totally dramatically different way. You know, we see it just in the apex of his story in his death and resurrection. Man, what a way to defeat sin and death, to die, you know, to die a criminal's death on a cross. But no one would say that that was a, that was a move of weakness. In fact, it was the strongest moment in human history. No one before nor since has, has done anything as strong as succumbing to death to defeat death. And we know that in hindsight. But at the time, and you see it in the gospel narratives, at the time, he is mocked and ridiculed. Like, oh, yeah, you're the son of God, you know? Why don't you like free yourself from that cross and come down? I mean, like, it's not to say the scene of the crucifixion is gentle. It's not. It's violent and bloody and uh, grotesque in many ways, really shockingly sad. But in terms of biblical gentleness, in, in a weird way, that is the visual. It's the willingness to lay oneself down, but not lay oneself down as a, as a an expression of cowardice. Jesus is not, you know, he he's not afraid when he goes to the cross. He doesn't go to the cross with a, a sense of, well, here we go, I lost, we failed. He goes to the cross as a means of confrontation. I mean, he he is hanging on that tree, physically above the people on the ground. And in a strange, beautiful, poetic way, it's almost, it's his ascension as king, standing over um, these broken people for whom he is dying, but more than that, standing tall over death itself. And so I, I think there's a way in which gentleness stands up to outrage. We think of gentleness as cowardice, you know, like, People are yelling, and to be gentle, to say nothing, to sort of shrink back is to be a coward, to be too afraid and too uncertain, lacking conviction, to enter the fray and to, and to outrage back, you know? But that's not true. Biblically speaking, 
there is a way in which um, the cool, calm, collected steadiness that followers of Jesus can find in knowing that Jesus rules and reigns over all. And that's where I, that's where I place my hope. It allows us to stand tall, gently in the face of outrage. And what's interesting is there is so much outrage in our world today that the quiet, calm, steadiness, and confidence of a gentle spirit might be the loudest thing you can say into the cacophony of outrage. Um, so there's a lot more to say about that. But again, it is countercultural to the way we typically think about it, uh, but it is the way of Jesus. Yeah, I think you really hit on an important point there. It's not that it's a quiet confidence per se. It's not that we kind of shirk back, but it is you standing on confidence. We have hope. Uh, we don't have to engage into every single battle, but we also don't cower from truth. I think that kind of helps to reframe a lot of the winsomeness debate that we see in certain circles about being winsome and what does that actually mean? And are you going to be a truth person or a grace person? It's actually both both and. Um, and that's where really what we see in the way of Jesus. And I love that kind of visual that you were talking about, that kind of that confidence that he has as he's engaging kind of those and he's kind of being lifted up. It's not cowering down and kind of shrieking back. It's actually stepping forward and speaking the truth, um, but doing so in love. Well, Jay, obviously there's so much that we could keep going on. Uh, we probably ran a little bit longer than we normally do here on the podcast, uh, but it's been such a fruitful conversation. I really appreciate kind of the way you frame a lot of these things up. One of the things that I always do is we end the podcast is uh, kind of talk about other resources. Obviously, you've written a number of books. We'll link to those, not only Analog Church, but also this new one, Analog Christian. What other books would you recommend if folks want to dig a little bit deeper on some of these ideas that we've talked about today? Yeah. Well, your book, <laughs> well, I appreciate Following that. Jesus in a Digital Age. I, I really, truly mean that. I had, a, I had a chance to read an early copy of the book and was happy to endorse it. You display, as you've done for many years now, a real thoughtfulness and skill in presenting ideas. And I just think there are some really helpful, practical hookholds there. So um, your book, Following Jesus in a Digital Age, is one that I would highly recommend. I didn't pay uh, you I, for that, by the way. I no, just want no, all the listeners a, to know, but no, that's really uh, kind of you. That was an honest, genuine endorsement. Yeah. You know, Andy Crouch uh, obviously has done great work in this area, TechWise Family from a few years ago. His newer book, uh, the, the newest book, the, the Life We're Looking For, um, you know, he gets into all of his sort of human beings, our heart, mind, soul, strength, you know, creatures, and what does that mean in a technological age? Uh, fantastic stuff there. Um, and then outside of, uh, you know, Christian thinking and Christian writers, more modern writers who've sort of leaned in this direction that I have found incredibly helpful uh, would include Sherry Turkle. She's got a couple of books out and they've been out for several years, but still, I think, really, really um, have a lot to say today. Uh, another person I think of is Nicholas Carr. Uh, his book, The Shallows, was really, really formative for me. And then I mentioned Cal Newport earlier. Um, he's got several books, but deep work in particular, I think, uh, is really, really helpful uh, in this conversation. Well, that's great. And we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners' sake uh, so you can do that. But also make sure to check out Jay's books. He's got some really, really helpful books, especially this new one, Analog Christian. Um, but Jay, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. It was a really fun conversation. I look forward to connecting soon. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks so much. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? 
These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jay and learn more about his new book, Analog Christian, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the most important ethical issues of our day and to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.